0: Today's story is a Sunday School Top Ten. This is one of the stories right up there with Moses and the Israelites crossing dry ground through the Red Sea. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den. And so when I mentioned the epic battle between David and Goliath, many of you are familiar with it. In fact, most people are. Even people who've never read the Bible before are familiar with this story. So when one football team faces another or a politician faces long odds... There are times when it's almost inevitable that one of them will be called David and the other Goliath. And when the underdog wins, what's the headline? Giant killer, right? Dewey versus Truman, Villanova versus Georgetown, Israel in the 1967 war. It's so familiar that we also think we know the moral of the story. So in Sunday school lessons, our children are taught that David is the hero, that he's courageous when others are cowards that when children face giants in their lives, they're to think of the little five stones they have, and we tell them to have courage and go out and slay the giant, although we don't tell them to do that literally. Um, But not everyone agrees with that assessment of the story. In 2013, Malcolm Gladwell published his fifth book entitled David and Goliath, and the first chapter dealt with this story. The battle, the miraculous battle um, in which David defeated Goliath, and it's a victory won by an underdog who by all expectations should not have won." At least, that's what most people think, and that's the way the story's been told for centuries. But Gladwell said, no, the problem with that version of the story is that we get almost everything about it wrong. Gladwell then analyzes the story. He looks at the geography, the weapons, the armor, the military tactics, and in the end, he attributes David's success to cleverness, and he shows how David exploited Goliath's size and immobility through cunning speed and surprise, And turned Goliath's strengths into weaknesses and his own weaknesses into strengths to win the battle of the millennium. So, is Malcolm Gladwell right? Or what about our old Sunday school teachers, the ones who told us that this is facing courage with uh, with overwhelming odds? Or is, as Gladwell says, this a story about exploiting the weaknesses of our enemies through cleverness and skill? Or is it something totally different? Well, I'd like us this morning to look at the story, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17... Um, if you want to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it begins on page 403, page 403, or you can pull out a Bible app, or if you'd like to, you can follow along with the words on the screen. Now I'll tell you this is a long chapter, 58 verses. So there are times when there'll be some words up there, and I'm gonna summarize just to make things move along. And then other times when I'll read the text. And one other thing I want to mention, and I, I talked about this last week, is That we are doing something different with this particular sermon series, and that is offering you an opportunity to contribute to how we prepare for what we talk about on Sunday morning. So, we prepared a study guide. You can look through this, it has a set of questions for each week. We'd encourage you actually to do this in advance. And then there is an email address where you can send us your ideas, questions, comments, illustrations. It's KingDavidIdeas at gmail.com, KingDavidIdeas at gmail.com. So send us your ideas, and we'll be glad to try to incorporate those into what we're doing here on Sundays. Well, I want to start at the beginning of the story. The first few verses tell how the Israelite army and the Philistine army are on opposite hillsides. They both decided to occupy high ground. If you know anything about battle tactics... Uh, Usually armies want to occupy some kind of high ground. Both of them have picked their hillsides. In between is a valley where eventually the battle is to take place. But neither of them is willing to give up the strategic advantage and go into battle. One of them is waiting for the other one to make the first move. Verses 4 to 7, the narrator tells us that the Philistines have a champion named Goliath. He has impeccable military credentials. He's about six feet, nine inches tall. He's all the latest in battle technology, and he is supremely confident. But he does something unusual, although not without precedent, and that is he issues a personal challenge to the Israelites. That happens in verses uh, 8 to 10. It says that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine, that's Goliath, said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let's fight each other. So instead of a battle between two armies, what he's saying, let's just have a duel. Mano, mano. Me versus one of your soldiers. Whoever wins, wins the war. And whoever loses, becomes the other's slaves. Now, one of the things that's really important to know here, and it's not evident to us because it's just not the way we think, but in those days, when two armies fought, it wasn't just the armies fighting, it wasn't just a national deal. It was a religious thing as well. It was a clash not only between the armies, but between the gods that they each worshipped, or the gods, plural. Whose god was greater? And the way to find out was to go fight it out. They believed that the that God's divine will would be revealed in the outcome. So when Goliath issues this challenge, really he's saying not only is this a national conflict, but this is literally a battle of the gods. So how did the Israelites react to Goliath's challenge? Well, in verse 11 it says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, there's a great irony in, these, in this story, and that is um, something you may remember from last summer. Last summer, we talked about Saul, his early days, how he became king. And if you remember back to that series, one of the things we talked about is the reason that Saul was chosen, in part, was because he looked the part of a king. It says he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. So if Goliath is the Philistine's champion, Saul was Israel's champion. This should have been Saul's fight to fight. But the text says that Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So what you have here is not a very flattering picture of King Saul. Well, what we're told is that morning and evening, for 40 days, Goliath came down the hill and repeated this challenge. And the narrator tells us that each time he did, the Israelites fled from him in great fear. It's then that David arrives on the scene. Now, just to recap for those of you who may not have been here last week... About three to five years earlier, when David was probably between 10 and 12, 13, something like that, God had directed Samuel to go to David's house, his father Jesse and his older brothers, and to crown one of them or anoint one of them to be Israel's future king. And David had been selected, the youngest son. It was a surprise. In fact, he wasn't even there, he was out taking care of the sheep. But he was the one selected. Now, the news didn't make a splash in the broader Israelite community because it wouldn't be revealed until some time. Um, But within the family, this was kind of created a stir. But it didn't change David's day-to-day reality. He continued every day going out and taking care of the family sheep. Well, one day, David's father, Jesse, said, you know, what I want you to do is take some food to your brothers. The brothers were fighting. His three oldest brothers were fighting in Saul's army, or at least would fight if there were a battle. And... um, He arrives, and that's, he arrives just as Goliath is stepping out for his twice daily challenge to the Israelites. Choose a man and have him come down and fight me. So on 80 previous occasions, morning and evening for 40 days, he's done this. And it says, all the Israelites fled from him in great fear. Well, David hears this, and he says, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. And he's told that what Saul has promised is great wealth to the one who kills the Goliath, as well as the hand of his daughter in marriage, an exemption for taxes for the rest of his life. That's a pretty big incentive. But David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What we find here is that David is not motivated by marriage or money. It isn't even motivated by the opportunity to defeat one of Israel's most persistent enemies. What he's most concerned about is that God's name is being dishonored. When David hears what he hears from Goliath, shocks him. And so by speaking disrespectfully about Israel's army, David is indignant that anyone, even one so powerful as Goliath, would presume to insult Israel's God. So motivated by a desire to defend God's honor, David decides to do something about it. So in verse 32, he says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. What we have here is a clash of worldviews. For Saul and his army, all they have is Goliath on their minds. This power-forward, defensive, sized giant has terrified them. His size, his brutality, his cruelty is all they can think about. They are shaking in their boots. But David has a very different reaction. David says to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, and we'll go and fight him. Now, at this point, Saul thinks David is absolutely out of his mind. He says, You are not able to go out and fight this Philistine and, uh, against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. So, what we have here is Saul and the army th- letting their thinking be dominated by Goliath, and Saul's so paralyzed by fear that he can't see below the surface, and it's made him a coward. David, on the other hand, is coming at the problem from an entirely different perspective. Aren't we, he reminded them, the army of the living God? How can you let your perspective be so dominated by what you can see rather than what you know is true of God? Now, if we can put ourselves into the story for just a moment and imagine the times in our lives when our thinking has been so dominated by what we see that we lose faith in God. There's a temptation to let the Goliaths in our lives dominate our thinking. And along the way, sometimes as well, we imagine that all we can see is real. That's the only thing that's real is what we can see, what we can taste, touch, and feel. That's certainly the perspective that ultimately gets wrapped up and rolled up into philosophical naturalism, the idea that nature, the things we can see and feel and touch, are all that there is. And it's a kind of thinking that, even if you don't take it as a philosophical way of viewing the world, often creeps into our thinking on a day-to-day basis. We focus more on the obstacles that we face than on the God who is behind it all. But David sees things differently. He's not afraid. In fact, he's confident. He tells Saul why in verses 37, or 34 to 37. And here he goes back into his own personal experiences. He says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, if you read this, the first impression is, okay, David has confidence because he's had success before. He single-handedly defeated these predators who've threatened his sheep. And so his confidence must come from his skill and courage. People often talk about in this story, and we'll get to the sling part in a moment, that David was so skilled, he was like a SWAT marksman, and he could throw it so accurately that he could hit a mafia mobster from 200 yards off. But that's not the way that the narrator tells the story. This is not the source of David's confidence. It's not his skill, his courage. It's He says, your servant has killed both lion and the bear, for the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine." So David is not seeing himself as the one who killed these animals, but God. While David was out watching the sheep and his brothers were off doing what they were doing, David learned to rely on God even when facing great danger. Over time, God's love, his care, and his protection, things that David couldn't see became his source of confidence and became more real to him than lion fangs and bear claws. When we face new challenges or obstacles, it is very hard for us to believe that God will come through. One of the best ways, though, to find confidence in the moment is to remember how God has been at work in the past. I'll often, sometimes when I get discouraged, think back on what God has done in my life maybe childhood or my adolescence or think how He helped me navigate the challenges of college, uh, how He provided for me when I finished getting my MBA, how He led me through the drama of dating, um, how He helped me through the ups and downs of parenting or how he has provided for us as a church in so many really marvelous ways. One of the best ways to find confidence in the present is to remember how God has provided for us in the past. This is exactly what David does here. Now, after Saul listens to David's story, it doesn't appear that Saul got any more confidence, but he agreed at least to let David go forward. And he says, go and the Lord be with you. What happens next has attracted a great deal of tension because Saul begins to prepare David for battle with Goliath. He puts on this coat of armor that was Saul's. He places this heavy bronze helmet on his head. He gave David his sword, and David tried walking around in it. He felt really uncomfortable and clumsy. And so he says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. And instead, it says, David took his staff in hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Now this is often cited as an evidence of David's cleverness. Rather than fighting in a traditional way, David wanted to use tactics that he knew best, using a sling and some rocks. Tactics that it turned out were clever. Were the only ones that could possibly defeat the giant, so we could conclude that this is smart, clever, and talented young man. But the narrator does not want us to take that away from the story. Sure, Saul's armor was heavy, it was awkward and clumsy. And yes, David ended up with a strategy that was smarter and superior, and he had great executional skill. But the details here are given us to show that it's not David's wisdom, but his trust in God that delivers him from the Philistine. I think we have our own way of replicating Saul and David or Saul's mistake in this, this story, and that is that when we face challenges, suddenly all around us, we have people offering a steady stream of advice. They send us articles, lend us books, they tell us if they face something similar, you know, here, just do A, B, and C, and you'll be just fine. Uh, There's no question that they're concerned about you, and so they try to provide you with a way out, a solution. And sometimes they're at least partially right. But in the midst of all of that, you end up with so much advice, so much in your head that you can hardly move. And subtly, and more importantly, your trust begins to shift away from God toward technique, I'm convinced that we do make better decisions when we seek the advice of others. And who knows, somebody around us might actually have the one piece of advice that would allow us to exchange 40 or 50 or 60 pounds of armor for just what we need, our own sling and five small small stones. But we can never put more confidence in the advice of friends or in experts than we do in the living God. So listen now to the way the story is told by the narrator, this conflict between David and Goliath. And watch how David's trust in God works out. So the narrator tells us that the two of them walked toward one another in verse 41. David came closer, and the contrast between the two of them was just dramatic. This greatest of champions and probably the most and least significant soldier in all of the Israeli army. And that contrast is not lost on Goliath, so he uses the moment to do a little trash talking. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. But David understood that this battle wasn't about him. He was merely a participant in the drama between God and the powers of evil. So he said to Goliath, "'You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, "'but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, "'the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. "'This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands "'so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel.'" All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into my hands. Now, the battle that takes place is very short. Goliath starts approaching David. David took one of his rocks, probably about the size of a baseball, and he went round and round, and he aimed at the giant's forehead. He released the stone, it traveled probably at speeds of excess of 100 miles an hour, And it hit its mark, and it stunned Goliath. Goliath fell to the ground, knocked out. David took the giant's sword and finished him off. It says in verse 51, When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. The Israelites then pursued them and defeated the entire Philistine army. We live in a world where we put a priority on what we can see. And even those of us who follow the living God are very tempted and very have a hard time when we can't see things beyond just the world around us. Which means that we often focus on the Goliaths in our lives and forget the invisible world around us, the world that probably is more real than the real world we can see. Saul and the Israelite army could only see Goliath, but David, as young as he was, was the only person that day fully in touch with all of reality. Now it's clear David was skilled. It's also clear he was clever and courageous, But ultimately, his confidence was in the living God. And he fought with God's strength and for God's honor. David calls God the living God. And when he says that, he's not merely affirming that God exists. He's not merely saying, I'm not an atheist. He's saying something specific about God's character, about God's nature. David believes that God is an active God, that he's powerful and involved in human affairs, that he intervenes for his people, that he rescues them from danger, that he saves them. That he is the Lord God Almighty, the living God. There have been many times, many, many times in my life where I have been like Saul and his army. The giants in my life have seemed so large and intimidating that I've nearly given up hope that they can be defeated. At times, I've been so convinced that the only reality that matters is what I can see with my own two eyes. But in this story, a 17 or 18 year old boy has a completely different perspective. In the face of this physically imposing, seemingly invincible enemy, he refuses to focus on just what he can see and hear. But he puts his trust in God. At no point in the story does David take credit for his success. The overwhelming odds against him, the lack of size, experience, weaponry, all those things uh, contrast with the power of God that David believes is involved in his battle with this evil warrior. And so the lesson here is not about the enormity of the problem that the Israelite faced. But at the same time, it is about the sufficiency of God to meet the challenges, however great those challenges might be. Now, at the very beginning, I mentioned that this is a top 10 Sunday school story. And um, some today actually object to telling kids stories like this because it can be a frightening story. It has swords and shields and spears and slings that can throw rocks faster than Major League Baseball pitchers can throw baseballs. So why do we tell children stories about giants? Well, this is a story about death and violence, about heroism and cowardice, about good and evil. And you might think, well, we maybe ought to wait a little longer to tell children stories like this and, you know, let them find out on their own that the world has a dark underbelly. But I think if we do that, we're not giving children enough credit. They're smart enough to know that the world can be a scary place. There are cruel enemies out there, and that's why they need to hear stories about giants and dragons and knights who ride in at the last minute to save the day. But even more, why they need to read stories like this. Stories about heroes like David. Heroes who fight not evil in their own strength, but by the power of the living God. And it's not just children who need to hear a story like this. It's all of us. So one of the questions we need to ask, each one of us has to ask ourselves is, what is our Goliath? What's the obstacle? What's the barrier? What's the challenge that we're facing that is so big that we can't imagine how it will be fixed, how it will be solved, how it will be resolved? It might be something keeping you up at night or something interrupting your thoughts during the day or something that is giving you an anxious feeling in the pit of your stomach from moment to moment. It might be about a job, either because you're out of work, underemployed, have a bad boss, or you're working way too many hours and just don't have any work-life balance. It might be a relational challenge, either a marriage on the rocks or maybe you're single and you just would like to be married or a strained relationship with a parent or a child or a close friend. It might be a financial difficulty, either debt or upcoming bills or dwindling savings. It might be failing health, a chronic illness or a terminal illness or an undiagnosed problem. Whatever it is, this story offers us hope. It reminds us that God is trustworthy and we can put our trust in Him. No matter what we see in front of us, there is another reality beyond what we can see, that the living God is the one who can take care of us. There is nothing too big or threatening That with God's help, we cannot face. David got involved in this whole situation out of a concern for God's reputation and honor among both the Israelites and the surrounding nations. He believed that the Lord God Almighty would deliver them and would let everyone know that Israel's God was the one true God. So when we trust God in the midst of our difficulties and He comes through, We can say just as David did, that all those gathered there will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he has given them into our hands. We know that when God does only what he can do, it's not about our cleverness. When we face overwhelming odds, we just shouldn't look first for a clever solution. Maybe we do over time, but we need to first look to God. We look to him, we ask him for courage, we ask him for wisdom to know what to do. And when he comes to the rescue, and he will, we need to give God credit. Let's pray. Father, I know that each one of us, some big, some small, have challenges in our lives that feel exactly like a Goliath. I pray, Father, that we would not be consumed just with what we can see, what's right in front of us, but that we would remember that there is a vast world beyond that, world in which you're involved, even if we can't see, taste, touch, or feel. We know that you're involved. Father, I pray that we would trust you because you're trustworthy, knowing that you can defeat these giants in our lives. And pray that you will. In the meantime, Father, may we put our hope in you. May we have the confidence that David had, not because we're clever or skillful, but because we know that you are enough. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.